coming up next on the Wet Fly Swing podcast. I came off the water and there was a, a fellow sitting in a lawn chair along the river with his waders. He was smart enough to know that the lawn chair was more comfortable than the rock. He was just watching it, you know, waiting for fish to rise. And we struck up a conversation about how many years we'd been fishing there and where was he from. He was from Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And then we talked about how many people were on the river and how crowded it got. And uh, he said to me, he said, I don't know if this river can withstand this kind of pressure. That was Steve Borst on some of the challenges of increased fishing pressure on your home waters. The Delaware River and a couple of passionate fly shop owners today on The Swing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how's it going today? Thanks for stopping by the show. Quick reminder, the Stonefly Net build-out is going on right now. This is where Stonefly Nets is giving away one of their beautiful custom wood landing nets right now. You can head over to wetflyswing.com giveaway for a chance to enter to win this beautiful net. We're also going to be following the, uh, the journey uh, after we choose a winner and watching this net uh, build-out occur. So check it out right now. Today's episode is sponsored by Trestle, who you know from their game-changing telescopic fly rod roof rack systems. But did you also know that Trestle just released the only universal bike rack system designed exclusively for the angler and outdoorsman? You can check out this new universal rack system at wetflyswing.com slash Trestle right now to see their full line of gear-carrying products and the Artist Series apparel. That's Trestle, T-R-X-S-T-L-E. Trestle, live your pursuit. Today's episode is sponsored by Eastern Idaho's Yellowstone Teton Territory, Idaho's most renowned zone for fly fishing. From the Henry's Fork to the South Fork of the Snake and all the high alpine lakes and streams in between, Yellowstone Teton Territory provides anglers and other outdoor enthusiasts with all the information they need to plan their next big trip. You can visit wetflyswing.com Teton right now to get the full list of outfitters, lodges, fly shops, and all kinds of inspiration to get you started on your next trip to Eastern Idaho. That's Teton, T-E-T-O-N, wetflyswing.com Teton. Scott Meyer and Steve Borster here today to take us into the Delaware River system. We find out a little more about the history of the Catskills in this part of the country, which streamside guide is a must-have for this area, and what their remote deer camp cabin is all about. They take us into deer camp, so this is, this is good to uh, hear a little bit about uh, what they are fired up for this year. Drives in New York, Art Flick, and Hunting Trout. Here we go. Scott Meyer and Steve Borst from BlackDogOutdoorSports.com. How are you guys doing? We're doing great. How are you doing out there, Steve? Doing pretty good. Can't complain. Awesome. Well, we're going to dig into uh, what you guys have going at Black Dog, and uh, you're in a hot spot for fly fishing. We have a lot of listeners out in uh, the Northeast, and you know the Catskills, the Adirondacks. The I mean, there's all these names that everybody's pretty much heard about, and uh, we're going to dig deep into that. Probably, maybe even talk some some uh, migratory fish as well. But um, take us back real quick. Let's just start with both of you guys. Um, for uh, Scott, let's just start with you. Tell us how you first got into fly fishing and then and how that came into Black Dog real quick. I got started because my father-in-law, Steve, here, uh, for my birthday, basically hooked me up with a fly fishing setup about 15 years ago. And uh, nice. I dabbled in it for, you know, 
three or four years. And then I started doing a lot more of it and really enjoyed it. And I've just been, you know, practicing and kind of keeping the momentum going. And we have a lot of really great fishing around here. So you can kind of do anything with it around here. This is cool. So, and I wasn't totally expecting this. That's why this is great. It's always a nice surprise. Is Steve, you've been doing this like 40 years. You've been fly fishing and you got Scott into it. Um, he's your son-in-law. So, so let's, let's jump into you and then we'll kind of circle back around to Black Dog. So how did you get into fly fishing and, and come into the Black Dog? Well, when uh, we started a family um, 40 years ago, my wife went back to work um, and she was working second shift. So I was home taking care of my son, Colin, and he was um, five and six months old and it was winter time and I was bored out of my mind. So a couple of my friends had uh, made their own fishing rods via uh, kits from Cabela's. So I said, well, I think I'll make a fishing rod for something to do. But I didn't need any spinning rods, so I said, maybe I'll make a fly rod because I had this old Fluger Metalist kicking around. So I made a fly rod, and uh, of course, it was still winter time. So I, I talked to a couple of my friends, and they said, well, you should start tying flies. So next thing you know, I buy this kit and a couple of books, and I'm scrounging around looking for materials. I happen to be a uh, pretty enthusiastic uh, hunter, both waterfowl, bird, and deer hunting. So I I had some uh, parts from animals. So I started tying flies and, and uh, you know, hadn't even wet a line fly fishing yet. So I made a rod and was tying flies. And it, as you might expect, come spring, I was desperate for the ice to melt and the water to be uh, fishable. So that's how I got started. Yeah. So this was like early, mid 1980s? Yeah. Right. And then when did Black Dog, I don't know the whole history there. When did the, the shop start? Well, I was, uh, my dad, I grew up, my dad ran a uh, part-time gun shop in the uh, basement of our house. And uh, I would come home from school every day and hang out in a gun shop. And uh, so the shooting sports and uh, firearms and so on became, uh, you know, one of my passions as well as hunting and fishing. And uh, our career was a family business. We were in the um, tire and auto repair and heating oil business. And uh, that became really difficult to uh, make a living with for a lot of reasons. Everything we sold were products and services that people really needed to buy, but really didn't enjoy buying. So um, I decided in around 2010 that I would uh, do what my dad did is start a part-time gun shop. And uh, I quickly discovered that I enjoyed going to work every day, a lot more doing that. And my customers, you know, I was selling them something they wanted to buy and they were all happy customers. So over the course of time, we, uh, my brothers were partners with I, we got out of that business and um, I bought a new location where we are now um, in Glenville. And uh, we opened up the shop here. It was much larger. And uh, in the Probably two years ago, we uh, decided because I announced that I was going to phase out and retire. And uh, the boys said they didn't know if they wanted to pursue the firearms industry anymore because of uh, legislation. And, and oh, right. New York State is a difficult state to do business in. So we identified that there was uh, no fly shops in the area. There used to be one. And um, due to a bad marriage, they went out of business. Oh, wow. What was the one that went out of business? That was Goldstock Sporting Goods, and they were only okay. uh, they were only a mile and a half away. 
And being a fly fisherman, I knew there was a big void. There was no place to go. Even if you wanted to buy leader and tip it, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't find any place close by. So it was a destination kind of, you picked a river to go to and there may be a shop by it. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. So uh, about, I don't know, two and a half years ago, we, we made the transformation. We, we tur turned the, the store into an outdoor sports center. Um, we've got paddle sports and a big fly fishing department. Camping um, and hiking. Yeah. And my son is now, uh, he got his guide's license and uh, he's going to start doing some, some guide work. And I believe Scott is going to pursue that as well. Nice. What rivers are you going to be? Uh, how do, I'm not sure how the guiding works up there. Do you, do you have, can you guide everywhere? Or do you have to guide on select rivers? It's a general license, which gives you access to kind of all, of, all of New York, if you will. Uh, it just depends on, you know, you need a, a few different certifications if you're going uh, to take, take somebody out on a boat or off uh, gotcha. uh, but waiting wise, you know, New York is pretty open to you. This is awesome. Yeah, I love the, I mean, this is cool. And I only, we hear a short snippet of the story, but it's pretty cool because we have you, Steve, you, you've been doing this a long time and, uh, you know, this passion of just outdoors, but that makes sense, right? The outdoor, um, black dog outdoors, because, you know, I mean, we all love all the sports. It's not just fly fishing. I mean, I'm a hunter. I love hunting and, and, uh, it all goes together. Do you guys find like when somebody comes in your shop, do you find that, um, you know, it's a small, like it's a very diverse group of people or is there one sport that people are really coming for? Or is it fly fishing the main thing at your shop? We do a lot of fly fishing. Uh, you know, I would, it's hard to put an exact percentage on it, but you know, we, we do have a, a good selection of, uh, people looking for different adventures, uh, whether it be hiking, camping, uh, paddling is a, you know, a large component of what we do, uh, you know, kind of quality outdoor goods, uh, as well as ammunition and, and, uh, shooting supplies. So, you know, we've, we've got a, a decent selection and, uh, you know, just try to get the best for almost every day. We, um, continue to see new people come in that didn't even know we were here. And, and it, that's one of the humbling things, uh, is that, you know, you think that, uh, okay, we're going to, we're going to put a sign up that we're, uh, you know, a fly fishing shop and, uh, paddle sports and so on. And we're on a road that has a lot of traffic and yet still people walk in and they go, geez, I've driven by, but I never knew it was here. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. You know, gotcha. So what is your, I mean, what are the rivers? If you guys say kind of your home waters, maybe, you know, Steve, maybe we could just start with you. And since you've been out there a long time, I mean, is there, when you think of New York fly fishing, are you covering, you know, do you guys cover everything or are there specific rivers that are your like your home water? Well, I think that, um, a lot of people, because we have so many choices, um, have their favorites. So, you know, our customers go, you know, to the Osable up in the Adirondacks and, and many other streams that, you know, the Scroon River is a popular destination. The uh, Cateros is a local stream. Um, the Batten Kill, which, you know, comes out of Vermont and New York. But there's a, a lot of people that go to the Catskills. And uh, again, similar distance. My personal favorite because of, of where I live. I fish the Catskills um, 90% of the time. Oh, you do? Good. Yeah. Yeah. Mostly good, good. Uh, the, the West Branch and the main stem of the Delaware. I do I do get over to the Beaver Kill and the Willowemock and so on. That's where I really kind of cut my teeth. So I like going back there for nostalgic purposes. I gotcha. That's perfect. Yeah. I was, I was hoping you were going to say that because it's, uh, you know, the Catskills is always one of those, it's just one of those names, you know, that if you haven't been out there 
whether it's like the flies, you know, the, the style of fly or just the tradition, right? And it seems like that that is the place. I mean, they're all great, but I mean, maybe we can take us on a journey down the cat skills a little bit today. Does that, does that work for you guys? Sure. Okay, so let's take it to, I kind of like to start, and we'll circle back around on some of this to dig in more uh, to some of the background here, but um, but let's just say somebody's setting up trip, because we have a lot of people listening that are, you know, either some are getting ready to retire, or they're just kind of traveling around, they're always interested in hearing about spots. So if they're thinking cat skills, and they come into the shop, what, what are you guys telling them if they're kind of brand new to it, or they're trying to plan a trip? It really depends on how far they want to drive. Uh, most of the cat skills are about sub two hours you know, from, from being kind of like the East branch and what's the close town. Remind me again, Scott, what, what's your, I want to, uh, the town you guys are in is, uh, we are in Glenville, which is basically, you know, we are in the capital district of New York. Uh, so Albany, Schenectady, Saratoga, which is kind of inside that triangle. Uh, and we have, you know, going down to the Catskills, there's the East and West branch. Those are sub two hour drives. Uh, the Neversink River, uh, which is uh, not as well talked about, just kind of north of New York City, New- northern New Jersey, is a, a little little gem down there. One of the criteria that uh, I always try and base my recommendations on is uh, what experience level do you have? And that's really important for the Catskills because um, the West Branch of the Delaware, the main stem, East and the branch. East Branch is they're all wild trout fisheries now that have uh, a lot of fish, um, a lot of large fish. Brook trout. No, brown trout and, 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 rainbow. and rainbows. Oh, but, brown and rainbows. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are some brook trout that come in, to, you know, to the main rivers uh, during the cold water from some of the tributaries. But it's, um, you know, I've had the good fortune of being able to fish a lot of uh, famous destinations, the Henry's Fork, the Madison, you know, Bighorn and so on. And, you know, I think the Henry's has a reputation of being one of the most difficult places to catch uh, fish on a dry fly. And I will tell you that it is no harder or easier than it is to catch fish on the Delaware system. The Delaware system is as challenging as it gets. And due to the fact that, as I said, there's, uh, they're wild fish, they're large. And, you know, that, that watershed is uh, within a two to three hour drive of millions of people. People can get there from Philadelphia and New Jersey and Connecticut and New York City. So it gets pounded. And uh, fish that see a lot of uh, fishermen become pretty pretty wise and pretty hard to catch. Yeah. So that's the cat skills. So the cat skill, I mean, what is the cat skills? Take us there. Why, why is the cat skills such a, it's got the tradition, but why do you think it's such a destination? Why would somebody really want to go there and check it out? It kind of has the birthplace going to fly fishing, uh, you know, down on the Beaver Kill, the Willow Mac, that was kind of the, the Roscoe center, you know, was yeah. the Roscoe, New York is, is self-proclaimed Trout Town, USA. And, oh, uh, it is. Roscoe, New York. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's right. That town is right where the Willowemock runs into the beaver kill. And if people read, you know, the history of fly fishing in, in uh, the United States, um, I, I would agree that that is Trout Town, USA. It was, as Scott said, it's, it's really the birthplace of, of fly fishing in, uh, in the, in the U.S. And so it's got, it's got a heritage. Um, there are still some, the Catskill Fly Fishing Center is there. There are 
uh, still some famous people that have taken residence down there. Um, Lee Wolf um, moved and and put his home down there uh, along the Beaver Kill River. The Deddies, who are uh, famous flag players, they're right down there. So there's there's a lot of history and a lot of heritage. So um, you know, is it the best place to go for fly fishing? Um, no, it, that's arguable, <laughs> but it's it's a destination, and it's a. And I think if people are going to uh, check things off and places they want to go, it's it's a must a must go place. Yeah, it is. So if you're if you guys are getting ready for a trip, I guess right now it's kind of you know winter time. We're kind of in in March now, uh, but how does have, that look if you're looking out? I would say we still have fishing. Uh, you know, a lot of the rivers that we're talking about. You go upstream far enough and the, the water's moving and, you know, ice, we've had a really mild winter this year. So I've been fishing all through the winter, uh, whether it be the Battenkill, the Hoosick systems, which are, you know, sub one hour drives. There's just a lot of options. You know, if you go farther north, you know, it's, it's a lot uh, colder up there. So those systems kind of freeze up. But, uh, you know, the Battenkill, the Hoosick systems... Uh, even the Kinderhook, which is another another kind of local stream within an hour, uh, still fishes pretty good during the winter. Gotcha, perfect. So, so there's a lot of opportunity. And then, in a, in a say a a more normal or a colder winter, you guys might you probably still have some fishing opportunities throughout the year, just when ice is off or whatever. And is it is that kind of how that looks? Well, New York just recently changed their uh, their regulations. So, New York used to close trout fishing. Uh, the end of September, and they they totally went in and, and overhauled uh, their management philosophy. They they used to stock fish almost everywhere, and they basically took inventory of of streams and identified if if streams had a wild trout population and the potential for that wild trout population to be self sustaining. And when they identified that, they eliminated stocking. And so they changed a bunch of things. They uh, they also changed that you can trout fish all year, but after September 30th, it's catch and release only. So th- th- there used to be nobody went fly fishing or even trout fishing in the wintertime uh, other than the Great Lakes fisheries. Uh, but now people get out there. And it, it, as Scott said, he's been going. There's a number of people that uh, stop in and out of the shop because we've had a mild year that have been out fishing. And uh, you know, good for them. It keeps the sport alive during the wintertime. Right. So let, let's take it back again. So if I was talking to you guys, let's just say we're talking on the phone right now and I'm trying to plan a trip for, say I got some time in the next year, I want to come up and go up to New York and I want to say maybe even go out on a guide trip with you guys or just go fishing. What would you be telling me? We can go any time. What, what would be the, the time we'd be going and which fish would we be going for? First question I would ask is, you know, when do you, you want to come up and what do you want to target? Yeah, I would say we could come up uh, pretty much any time that let's focus on the best time. And then fishing wise, I mean, I'd love to catch, I mean, some browns, rainbows, you know, whatever. Right. I mean, I think just thinking about trout, like where would we be going if we want to focus on trout? So I, I think most uh, fly fishermen would prefer to catch fish on a dry fly. Although, um, you know, you, you, you do whatever you need to do to. No, let's take it there. Let's take it as a dry. Let's say this is okay. like, this is our dry fly school. We're coming up okay. to actually target dry fly fishing in New York. I live for dry fly fishing. I mean, I will nymph fish and streamer fish only if I have to. So I pretty much have in my 40 years experience have identified that 
we will start seeing Quill Gordons and Hendrickson's hatching in the the Delaware system around the last week in April. Now, just because they're hatching doesn't mean the fish are coming up to them. But you know, last year I was uh, I was on the Delaware April twenty second, and uh, there were there were Caddis and Hendrickson's. So you know, generally speaking, that's when things really start. Um, I would say that the best time is probably the month of May and depending on the weather, uh, early June, you know, as like most uh, fisheries, as the days get hotter, the water temperature gets warmer. And when it gets too warm, then the fish really, the insects and the fish really are active only mornings and evenings. So the, the sweet spot would be during the time of year when you can fish all day and have, you know, targets to fish toward too. Yeah. And that'd be May. And then if we were coming up in May, what might we be fishing? What hatches might we be getting ready for? As Steve was saying, you know, the Quill Gardens, the Hendricksons, uh, Caddis, March Browns, and Green Drake. Green yeah. Drakes will start at the beginning of June. And then and then we, we see some olives in there. Um, there's a lot of Caddis. The Catskill streams you know, and there are Even a bunch of, of different, too. yeah, there's a bunch of different caddis, uh, you know, hatches. And I mean, you'll be on the river. Last year I was on, on the Delaware a couple of times and it was, looked like it was almost snowing out. There were so many caddis. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, but the frustrating part that day was um, the caddis weren't hatching. They were just flying around. <laughs> so there, there were not a lot of fish rising, but it's, uh, you know, that's what happens. So another, you know, caddis hatch that we have is the uh, October caddis, which are well, they're a they're a huge caddis. They're you know size six to ten, <laughs> and you know I was out on the loom sack this fall uh, and just happened to run into a few of those. But you know, not many, not many fish feeding on them actively on the surface. Yeah, that's always interesting. I always, uh, I guess, struggle a little bit with the caddis hatches. I mean, it seems like. There's a lot of them, but they're always, I mean, what do you feel? I mean, do you think that the caddis is just as easy fishing as some of the mayfly hatches? What are your thoughts there? Well, uh, it depends on, uh, it depends on the water. You know, again, the, I was talking about the, the Delaware system, those darn fish down there, the, the insect uh, life is so uh, prevalent that you can be on the water and have five or six different insects on the surface. And of course the fish have zeroed in on only one. So you're scratching your head trying to figure out which one. And, you know, I've, I've, last year I ran into a day where there were a lot, a lot of caddis on the water and the darn fish were, the only thing they were rising to was, was a spent wing caddis. And it takes you hours to finally figure that out if you even do. Right. <laughs> you know, that's awesome. So, uh, you know, that's what it, I mean, that's the good news, bad news. You know, the, the Catskill uh, watershed, Art Flick's streamside guide. Art wrote that back in the in the '60s. Right, and he lived and he lived on along the Schoharie Creek, and uh, you know did all of his studies on Catskill waters. And the Catskills um, have prolific insect hatches. And uh, so the good news is, and that's why I prefer to go down there. I can be to the bat and kill the same distance, but I know that if I go to the Catskills and it's the right time of year, there will be insects and there will be rising trout. You know, I I don't want to make that two-hour drive and get someplace and find out that, geez, everything everything is the way it should be. But there's no bugs on the water and there's no fish rising. Right, 
Right, right. So the Catskills, you can you can count on. If you're going there in May, you know there's going to be some act, yeah. uh, surface activity. Yep, definitely. And, uh, you know, like, as Steve was saying, you know, we have the Catskills to the south, but, you know, shift the, the clock, if you will, three weeks behind, and you can go up north and, and you know, the Osable fishes, like typically in May, it's really high because of all of the, all the snow melt. So, you know, that that comes into really good fishing in, you know, in June, really, I would say is probably the prime. Yeah, yeah Scott was really accurate. Um, you can look at what happens in the Catskills, and then three weeks later, the same things are happening in the Adirondacks, typically. Right, right. So three, it's trailing behind. That's cool. Yeah. So basically kind of that late April, May, June, and then July does it, and then it starts to eventually once it heats up, like is, are the cat skills still, what's that like in the, once you're in the middle of summer, say July, August? Well, it's a little more river specific because, um, you know, a lot of the streams like last summer, we had a really hot, dry summer and uh, a lot of the streams were really low and, and there were warnings you shouldn't go fishing because you're going to stress the fish. But the East branch and the West branch of the Delaware are tailwaters, as is the Neversink. Scott yep. mentioned that as well. And the and the uh, the Esopus. Is partial. Yeah. yeah. And those rivers have, uh, uh, you can go down to the west branch of the Delaware River and stand in the water for an hour and you have to come out because you're freezing and it could be 90 degrees outside because the water temperature is 52 right. or 54 degrees. So that one you're fishing. So that one in the middle of summer, you could fish. Yeah. yeah. And there, so you'll see sulfur hatches uh, all summer on, on those two rivers. Uh, sometimes not everywhere, you, you know, you have to hunt for them. And then you find any day that's, uh, you know, overcast or drizzling rain and, and there will be uh, tons of blue winged olives, you know, but it, it, it can be really uh, difficult. You know, they're, they're sometimes size 20, 22s. And it's a conveyor belt. Yeah. Of BWOs. Yeah. But it's, you know, at least if you want to find a place to go fishing and, and, and uh, find some fish that you can target, that exists during July and August for sure. Yeah, it does. Yeah, so pretty much, you know, year-round, it sounds like you can fish given the right conditions, and uh, and, and that's the Catskills. You you mentioned a little bit there, uh, Steve, about um, just Art Flick, and he's come up a few times on the podcast, and I want to dig in. Do you know a little bit of the history of the Catskills? Can you talk a little about maybe some of the folks up there that, you know, like Art and some other people that have influenced that area? Yeah, yeah. Well, Art, I read Art's book when I first started, and uh, we have some fly tying socials here in the wintertime once a week. And uh, we got a nice group of people that come in. A lot of them are younger people. And uh, a lot of younger people, or, or even if you're older, if you're, if you're less experienced, a fly fisherman, they don't really understand all of the um, insects and flies that are made to duplicate those, those insects. So yeah, right. I, I made reference to Art Flick's Streamside Guide, and, and I think maybe there was maybe 11 or 12 people here, and I, I think two people had ever even heard of it. So I said, it's a must-read. So I dug it out, and I reread the book again myself just just uh, about a week and a half ago. And uh, he, he was a fascinating man. He, he spent three years where he pretty much put his fly rod down and ran around the stream uh, with a notepad and a net catching insects and documenting nice. what they were and the dates and the times they awesome. came out. He was like an entomologist pretty much, right? Yeah. Well, he wasn't by uh, education, but he, he had a couple of, he made uh, reference to a couple of people that he knew that were entomologists. So he, oh. would, 
he would carry uh, bottles of formaldehyde. So that book you mentioned, The Streamside Guide, does that have a little bit of this history in it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Perfect. Sure. Perfect. So he would catch these, uh, you know, whether they be nymphs or, or dons, and he'd put them in a bottle and he would give them to um, his entomologist friends and they would get the Latin name of the bugs. And so he would, uh, you know, the book has all that information as well as uh, the three-year history recorded the dates and the times you know, for the whole season of when those insects hatched. And then he uh, also has photographs of the insects as well as photographs of the flies that he has tied to replicate those insects and then gives you instruction as to how to tie those flies uh, with the materials. Although it's, some of it's dated because he calls for polar bear fur sure. for, for a, a black-nosed dace and uh, seal fur for various other things. So, you know, today we have all kinds of synthetic materials that we can do that with. Yeah, that's sweet. That's sweet. No, I love it. I, in fact, I have that book on my shelf as well. My dad, I picked it up from my dad, right? And it's 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 a great, I mean, all these books. And, and so when you re- reread that book here a couple of weeks ago, was it pretty like lots of the stuff you're still using today? Lots of great information. Yeah, I think the uh, the biggest change that I've really observed through the years is that uh, the use of traditional Catskill dry flies, um, I don't see. I don't even see fifty percent of the fishermen using them anymore. That's a great question. So why? Because I always have that question because these are the most beautiful dry flies right <laughs> ever. Right, these perfect you know, how they're tied. They just look, they look way, for me, they look way better than a freaking parachute, you know, Adams or something. Although I love the parachute too, but why do you think that is? Why, why, why are they not used as much? Because they seem like they, they, they match the hatch perfectly. I think that, um, I think that they will still catch fish. Um, but I think that sometimes when you get some of these really finicky fish that are, that are feeding on, on emergers and not necessarily on duns, Right. I think that some patterns like your parachutes, um, and I love fishing with and tying CDC, flies with CDC material. And I think that those patterns compared to sparkle duns and so on, they will both um, appear to the fish as a dun or as an emerger. So I think that's part of the reason why that people have, have uh, switched over to them because they're, they probably catch a few more fish on them. Yeah. That's it. So basically it comes down to, well, like I said, matching the hatch. So the old traditional dry fly can work if it's imitating that perfect part of the life cycle, but there's probably other flies that are more maybe suggestive type patterns that are matching, you know, an emerger or something like that. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I, I would also add to that, that, you know, the, the manufacturers that, you know, we have access to that kind of classic super slender body Catskill dry, you know, it's not, and it's not an option, <laughs> if you will. You mean it's hard to get? Yeah. Oh, really? So you can't get that from like Umqua or any of these like companies as easy? There's there's takes on them, but I think the Catskill flies, they're kind of known for having either like a quill body uh, to oh, them or, right. or just that, right. that super slender profile with that, uh, you know, double half wrap. Yeah, that's right. That's why some of these other like local fly tires and things like that are the place to go if you could connect with them do you guys i mean where do you guys get your flies at your shop we get them uh through umqua rio fulling mills and we'll have uh you know we'll tie a few as well today's episode is sponsored by tokens fly shop tokens fly shop provides superior quality products at a great price 
They have also a great YouTube channel that you can check out right now with uh, new flight tying tutorials each week. Togans also has you covered if you're looking for unique in-house products, and they also support uh, many, many of the great brands out there that you know and trust. It's been fun connecting with Justin, the family, uh, over the years now, and it's it's been really cool. A great local fly shop. Togans is also offering their fly tying box where they send out materials at a regular cadence where you don't even have to think of it. You just open the mailbox and there's your Togans pack. And I recently made an order through Togans and the experience is always perfect. They've got you covered if you ever have questions or need any help, whether that's a YouTube tutorial or connecting with them uh, personally. Since 2005, Togans has been over delivering on customer service and it's time for you to check out uh, Togans Buzz for yourself. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash Togans right now to check out their diverse selection of products today. You support this podcast by clicking through that link to Togans online. That's Togans, T-O-G-E-N-S. Okay, back to the show. So this is good. So we've got a little feel, a little history. So on the, so we mentioned Art Flick, he's huge. Who else would you throw out there when you think Catskills history? Like, are there a f- couple other people that are just like as big as art out there? Well, Lee Wolf um, and Joan Wolf, um, from what I was told that Lee Wolf, and I, I know this is accurate, he had a home on the Battenkill. Uh, up in the, the the town of Shushan, and uh, he, he this is after he had really done all of his flying in Canada and mapping lakes and and has really I mean he was a pioneer in a lot of things he he's got the reputation of uh, inventing the first fly fishing vest as well as all the wolf patterns and so on and I I was told that he moved down to the Beaver Kill because the fishing down there was more consistent and he found better, uh, than, than it was where he lived in the Batten kill. And, uh, I'm, I'm not sure when he married Joan Sal- Salvato, I don't know if you know who Joan is, but she, yeah, we've had her on the podcast. Okay. Okay. So Joan, you know, she grew up in a, a big sporting family and she was, uh, I think world champion woman flight caster. They ended up getting married and, uh, they built this, uh, well, they bought this little cottage um, right along the Beaverkill River, which a side note to that was, uh, is the birthplace of Ducks Unlimited, the conservation organization. Um, and I had the good fortune of, of I've been a longtime volunteer at Ducks Unlimited, um, of approaching Joan after Lee had died about putting a cairn up on their property, um, designate, not designating it, but you know, letting people know that that was the birthplace of Ducks Unlimited. So um, I helped a friend, we built it and we installed it. And during that time, um, Joan would come out and bring us chocolate chip cookies and, and milk. And she offered, uh, for us to fish on her private stretch of the beaver kill, which of course we took advantage of. Um, so, you know, those are legendary names, you know, of course, uh, they have the, the, you know, the, the, the wolf fly fishing school up there and, uh, yeah, her still son, going. yeah, her son, Doug, who lives down the road in Lou beach, um, has the, uh, the, the wolf lineup of fly lines and other, you know, other products, the triangle taper, which I find, I find really interesting because I don't know how long ago, call it 25 years ago, they came up with that triangle taper design. And now almost everybody in the fly line business makes fly lines that emulate that triangle taper. That's right. So it, they were pioneers in that respect as well. Yeah, they were. 
They were. That's right. So, so yeah. So the wolves were huge, and Joan was on in episode one hundred uh, quite a while ago, and we it was pretty funny. That was a really great episode. Um, I haven't talked to her in a little bit, but uh, good. So we got a couple of names here. Well, let's take it back to the river. So we're getting ready for this trip, and uh, and we're going to be heading to the Delaware. And I guess so. If you are coming earlier, you're probably hitting. Is it, is it where you're hitting higher up in the systems, and then maybe later in the summer when it's hot, you're hitting the tailwaters? Or how does that look where you're choosing where to go on the Delaware? I think a lot of that has to do with water levels, um, because it's a tailwater. Sometimes uh, the the whole um, dynamics of of how those reservoirs and rivers exist or were all created to benefit uh, New York City's water supply. So those two rivers, the east the, the east branch and the west branch of the Delaware rivers, they run through two distinct different types of habitat. So the, the east branch runs through really forested, pristine country. And, it, and what's the town, real quick, uh, Steve, on that? What is the town, that, if you had to say the closest town, the central town around? Well, the, the town Delaware. where the, the headwaters of, of that runs through uh, Roxbury and then Margaretville. And then that's where the dam is. I'm sorry, that's where the reservoir starts. And that's called the Papacton Reservoir. And it's, it's quite large. And the, where the dam is, that's Downsville. And that's the east branch of the Delaware. That has the 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 best water quality as far as drinking water is concerned. So that reservoir is used to supply New York City, uh, amongst others, for drinking water. The West Branch comes out of uh, the headwaters are up near Stamford and runs down through little towns in North Courtright and down into Delhi. And that ends up being um, in the Cannonsville Reservoir. Now that that country is is all um, traditional dairy farm and agriculture, so the water quality for drinking is nowhere near as good because it has manure and fertilizers and all of that 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 runs into it. But we all know that that stuff makes for good plant life in a river, and good plant life makes for good insects. So. That uh, reservoir is when they drain water out of that, they don't use that for drinking water at all. That river is is used to control the flow of the Delaware River downstream, so that the salt line does not recede or or, or in you know run inland during the tides. So it's only about I think it's only about twelve miles long before it it meets up with the uh, the west or the east branch in the town of Hancock. Now, the East Branch is probably just under 30 miles long, um, but it still has cold water running through. But, you know, if you got really hot weather uh, for that river to run the length of 30 miles, it, it gets it can get warm. Whereas the uh, the West Branch has still got cold water all the way down through for that 12 mile stretch. And again, it's it's got prolific insect hatches. Um, and then the main stem of the Delaware, you know, that runs down through some beautiful, beautiful country that goes down through national. It's a national scenic river. In fact, guides that float that river have to be registered with the National Park Service and uh, so on and so forth to, to float down that river and take get clients. Gotcha. So which just on generally. So these rivers are flowing, let's say the east branch of the Delaware. It's flowing. Is it flowing just uh, east or where, which way? What's it flowing into? They kind of intersect. Uh, so the East Branch will flow southwest, and the West Branch will flow, I would say, almost kind of north, north south, but it kicks a little bit to the east, uh, where it intersects Hancock. 
So the town of Hancock is, yeah, I see it, right? That's where, and you're, that's right on the border of Pennsylvania and New York. Yeah, and that's what I was just going to say, that the uh, probably half of the West Branch borders Pennsylvania, and then the uh, the main stem is is a border of Pennsylvania for a long distance. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I see it. So basically it's going, yeah, it basically starts up, they combine at Hancock and then just go south all the way through Pennsylvania and New York in there, and then it's eventually, and they're heading where, or what is it flowing into eventually? It flows right by, uh, you know, Philadelphia, I believe, and right into... Oh, right, Delaware, yeah, all the way down. I mean, it's that's amazing. It's going, I'm just I'm tracking it on the map. It's like, wow, Trenton, yeah, Trenton, Philadelphia. What I have found fascinating about that watershed is that there were never any dams put up in that watershed. And I remember 35 years ago, I would end up, you know, d- during the middle of the day when the trout fishing was slow, I'd, I'd end up over in uh, Fish's Eddy on the East Branch. And the pools would be chock full of American shad that had run all the way up from the Atlantic Ocean. And they were in the East Branch and we would shad fish. And uh, I mean, you still see shad in that river and hickory shad. And on the right near the junction hole of, of where the uh, East Branch and the West Branch uh, come together, uh, the last few years they've been catching striped bass that have been, oh wow that run all the way up. Yeah, Amazing. I was at a, a dealer show this summer uh, at West Branch Angler, and you know, when a person I was with caught a glimpse of a striped bass in the West Branch Angler pool. So these striped bass are going, I mean, so what you're saying is that these fish, there's no, there are no barriers to get them all the way up to there. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. I, I was just thinking when we were talking about this, cause that's obviously why the Delaware river, the Delaware, you know, the state, it, it comes in right there. There's the huge Bay at Delaware Bay. And then, but yeah, I mean, it goes up through, like we said, through Pennsylvania, the border, then up through New York, and then you get into the branches at Hancock. It's a huge length uh, of distance that, that seems amazing to me that these striped bass there aren't barriers you would think with all the huge cities around there would be barriers but there's not but even you know just just east of us uh the hudson river you know the first dam that you run into is at troy and it's tidal all the way up till troy but there is a dam but there is a dam so there's no stripers above that yeah I mean that eventually you'll hit dams in the delaware system when you get to where the reservoirs are but uh, sure but that's yeah. way up yeah that's yeah. really cool yeah, yeah. How many miles is it from Hancock to, if you're just to drive to say roughly to Delaware? Um, I don't know. I don't know for sure. I'd say probably over a hundred. Yeah. Okay. So a hundred miles. Yeah. 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 It's it's all, yep. Gotcha. Put that in perspective. Good. So this is awesome. I I love, I always love to take the broader picture to look out to see where we're at. And, uh, and the fact that there's stripers is pretty cool coming up there, but it comes down to these West Branch, the East Branch. Really, I mean, these are tailwaters, right? That's why yep. the, part of the reason these are so amazing rivers, because if it wasn't for that, maybe it wouldn't be the same. I mean, what do you think? Is there Are there natural stretches of stream up there in the Catskills that are just, even without the tailwaters, are still amazing fisheries? I would say that's more on the smaller brook trout side. Uh, you know, typically in, in the summer, when it gets a little bit warmer in the larger rivers, uh, people can head, you know, kind of into the hills and find these little, you know, thin blue lines that are, you know, just yeah, the brookies. nice little brook trout streams. You know, a close one kind of right by us is uh, uh, the West Hill flows into the uh, Schoharie. Into the Schoharie watershed. Yep. Uh, but even if you go north, uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of brook trout streams in the Adirondacks. It's, you know, a proliferation of 
these small native small populations. Dreams. Of, yeah, of brook trout and uh, browns. You know, we have uh, Gasher Brook, uh, our local Clearwater Trout Unlimited study uh, with the DEC, you know, a few years back, and they found native population of brook trout and brown trout, uh, which is a tributary to, you know, our local stream of the Cateros. Oh, gotcha. Right. So these are fish that, like for the browns, they were stocked at some point, probably 100, whatever, 100 years ago, and they've just, they don't stock it now, but they're just reproducing naturally. Yeah. It's an interesting, um, this is a legend, so I, I don't know if there's a uh, proof to this, but I asked a number of years ago about the rainbow trout in the uh, Delaware system. And the the East Branch and the main stem of the Delaware for many, many years have not been stocked. And that's because Pennsylvania had a, a very good fisheries management program and they would not stock any of their rivers or streams that had a wild population. And since a lot of it was bordered with New York, New York honored Pennsylvania's um, decision. So that's why those rivers have a very vibrant population of wild trout. So I asked the question, how did rainbow trout get in here? The stories are that 100 years ago, there were some very, very wealthy um, hotels in the Catskills that would cater to people from New York City. And they offered fishing and they would bring in rainbow trout from the West. And the story was that there was a, a rail car or two that contained rainbow trout that they were bringing in from the West. And the train broke down along the Delaware River because the, the railroad runs right along it. And it was hot out and they were fearful that they were going to lose all those fish. So they dumped them into the river. That's what I was told. And uh, who am I to argue? Sounds like a cool story. Yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> and people are loving them. Are, are you guys loving the rainbows as much as the browns, as much as the brookies? Or is it is there one that you kind of really love fishing for? Well, I... I'm. I love the big ones. I don't care what. <laughs> I don't care what species they are. So you don't like the brook trout. The brook trout. Those guys. They're they're just too small. I guess there's some big brook trout too. But I'm thinking more smaller streams. You're not going to get yeah. a giant fish. I love the brook trout um, because of where I find them, um, and that's usually in a very secluded wilderness setting where you're not dealing with other people, and their their colors are magnificent. We. We have a, a piece of property up in the Adirondack Mountains where we do have our deer camp, and we have a, a nice stream that runs through it, and uh, it's full of brook trout. And we, and you may only catch five inches, but they're, you know, we we throw them back most of the time, and they're beautiful to look at. They're just, it's a, a little sense of uh, the wild when you when you are in those places catching those fish. Yeah, definitely. Nice. Well, if we have time here, we'll, we'll touch on the deer camp. Um, I did want to just jump into the shop a little bit, um, and maybe you guys can describe. You know, if you're coming, maybe describe the shop for somebody who hasn't been there. What what can you expect? What do you what's it take us there? What does it look like? You know, is it mostly fly shop? Is it a mix of everything? It it is a mix of everything. Uh, but you know, we have a large section of our floor that's dedicated to fly fishing, uh, fly tying. You know, we we carry Patagonia, Sims, uh, Reddington, Lamson, Rio, Orvis. Uh, Douglas Rods, which are a New York company, uh, Winston Rods, uh, which are out of Twin Bridges, Montana. And, you know, we try to you know, kind of offer everything that we have flies for, uh, you know, all the, the fly tying materials to tie them. And, you know, we have uh, 
it's a smaller shop. I think we're about uh, 2,500 square feet for kind of the, the floor there. And we pack a lot into it. <laughs> we also do a lot with the fish pond. And I don't think I'm missing anyone else, am I? No, he covered most of them. Oh, we, Sage. Yeah. We, we tried to, um, when we decided that we were going to get in the fly business, the fly shop business, I should say, um, I said to the guys, I go, look, we need to make sure that we, we do this right. And we need to make sure that we are fully stocked before we start making announcements that we are a fly shop because you only have uh, one chance at a first, at a, at a, at a first impression and we want it to be a good one. So if anything, I would say we probably packed the place up with more stuff than we needed to. But when people came in, they said, wow, you guys got stuff. <laughs> so we're, pr we're proud of the fact that we have stuff. It's well displayed, um, good products. Um, and we, you know, we pride ourselves in, in being knowledgeable about our products. Right. What are some of the other um, products, outdoor sports you have in there? So kayak sounds like that's a pretty big one. What are the, yeah. The, uh, uh, yeah. What do you have there? We sell uh, Winona and current design kayaks and canoes, uh, bending branches, paddles, as well as uh, Stolquest and or NRS dealer as well. Uh, they also have, you know, started doing a lot in the kind of the fishing raft line, uh, which is cool. Uh, were you ever hear of Watermaster? Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. They're yeah. They're a good company out of uh, Montana. There, our big sky inflatables. Uh, so we carry. You know, we're a dealer for them. Uh, I got a Kodiak on the floor, and and one on order for myself. <laughs> so <laughs> exciting. Quiet cat uh, e bikes. Um, oh yeah. Right. Right. And and you know we don't we stock those uh, seasonally in the middle of the winter time. It's not a hot seller. So uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, but we also, you know, continue to, to stock the, as Scott mentioned earlier, ammunition and, and, and shooting supplies. Oh, right. So you don't have guns anymore, but you have supplies. Yeah, we have air rifles and muzzle loaders, but uh, okay. no regular traditional firearms. Yeah, and it's interesting. Of, I, you know, uh, it's always interesting on the guns. I, I don't, you know, we don't want to get into politics or anything like that, but it was... Um, I understand kind of where you're coming from, right? I mean, basically selling guns, you've got some changing regulations and we were, we were up in Canada um, last year and I was talking to some of the guys, it was mostly a Canadian crew and, and they were talking about handguns, right? That like, basically you can't get a handgun, right? You can, I don't even know if you right. can sell yeah. them in Canada. Yeah. And they were just kind of like, you know, they're all hunters, we're all hunters and stuff. And they were kind of like, ah, you know, kind of pissed, but then the they, they, they weren't that pissed. I mean, do you guys find like handguns is really a big part of the gun market or is it more like people like rifles, hunting, stuff like that? It was um, handguns in spite of the fact that New York is one of the most difficult states to purchase a handgun. You have to have a permit to purchase one and you have to jump through a lot of hoops to get a permit. But in spite of that, um, they outsold long guns probably three to one. Oh, wow. Yep. So it still was the, it still is the thing, even though, I yeah, mean, yeah. and hunting, that's the cool thing about New York. You know, I mean, there's lots, right. You got your deer camp. There's tons of opportunities for hunting up there. Oh yeah. yeah and we also carry, uh, you know, cater to kind of the upland sportsmen too, uh, as well. Clothing, so, clothing, you know, a lot of Orvis clothing. Uh, oh, right. We have uh kind of Trek boots also, which is, a. Uh, you know, that's a kind Both of a Montana brand. Yeah. It's a, it's a, a high end, more specialized uh, product for somebody that, uh, you know, is serious about their footwear. The Kenetrek is a, a great product. How do you spell that? 
K N E T R E K. Yeah, Kenny Trek. Yeah, Kenny Trek. Yep. Yeah, those are good looking boots. Cool. Well, we will uh, we'll get a link out to that as well, and obviously we'll have a link to your guys' uh, shop so they can take a look. And uh, so yeah, so you go in there. Is there a you know in your shop? Do you guys have like a tying? You know, can are you people coming in there tying flies? At you got a table set up and all that. Yeah, we've been uh, we did it last year, as you know this year we kind of ramped it up a little bit more, and we have this back room that. You know, we can hold, I think the most that we've had back here is about 20 people uh, tying flies. It gets a little cramped at 20, but, you know, we have probably four large, uh, you know, folding tables that we can all basically form a, a big, big table around. What I found that's, uh, it's really the uh, really cool dynamics with, with our fly tying social is that we, we, you know, invite people to come, whether you're just curious and you want to take a look around whether you are an experienced tire whether you're a brand new tire or whether you just you know want to come in and have a beer um and we get all of that and you know what happens every single week is that somebody will come and they'll be either brand new at tying or relatively inexperienced and then somebody that knows what they're doing will say well come on over here let me show you how to do this and you know, it's, it's really cool. People are making new friends and they're sharing what they know with one another. And, uh, it's, it's been it's a, a great community. Yeah. You know? It's, it's very rewarding to host that. And, uh, we have a good time. Yeah. It sounds like fun. Nice. So you guys have a few things going on. Anything else you want to shed? I mean, we've kind of touched the surface on the, um, you know, that part of the, we're talking about the Delaware, the West branch, the East branch, anything else somebody should be thinking about if they're planning a trip? I would also say, you know, Steve likes the dry fly fishing. I like it too, but you know, I'm I'm not afraid to pick up a, a Euro nipping rod or a streamer rod and you know, go throw those around. The West Branch of the El Sable River up north is amazing pocket water, uh, and you can nymph some really excellent trout that see a ton of stuff out of there. You know, it's there's big browns, there's big rainbows. Uh, yeah it's it's pretty awesome you know and it and the setting alone is you know you're you're surrounded by all these kind of higher peaks with you know rock faces and you know it's it's really accessible uh too which is very nice and that's the osable up north of you guys yeah yeah near lake placid most people have heard of lake placid yeah lake placid perfect up in that same area there's the saranac river and uh the Boquette River. So there's, you know, there are quite a few uh, very notable waters to fish up in that gotcha. area. That's cool. You know, the Saranac, the Osable, and the Boquette, they all flow into Lake Champlain. Uh, there are some dams and natural dams, uh, waterfalls that, you know, fish can't get quite past. Uh, but the northern, I think, I don't remember the exact chapter of Trout Unlimited. Uh, they basically removed a, a dam that had a fish ladder probably seven years ago and they've they've noticed a a remarkable kind of improvement in landlocks migratory salmon going up the river so that's something that's very cool right so atlantic salmon yeah Yeah, yes but they're landlocked they they don't they're not they're not they're not heading out the ocean but they are migrating yep and you know the other thing that's kind of just northwest of us is uh Lake Ontario has these huge runs of, you know, large, well, they have kings and cohos that come in, you know, they migrate in, but 
you know, right now, uh, Salmon River is also actively fished through the winter, uh, as well as a lot of the... Oh, yeah, the salmon, of course. Yeah, that's... Yep. Uh, so the steelhead are, are there to spawn. Uh, you know, the browns come in kind of for the feast uh, when the kings and cohos are there. And there's some impressive fish that, uh, that migrate in. Today's episode is sponsored by Maverick Fly Fishing. They make the lightest Euro-Nymph reel in the world, which makes your rod more sensitive, casting more accurate, and you can hold your dead drifts longer without the shoulder burn. This reel is so unique, you may not even recognize it as a fly reel. I had a chance to fish the Stinger reel with Jeff on his home river on the Truckee. The biggest thing that I remember is the weight. The weight really stuck out because you can't even barely tell there's a reel. It's essentially kind of like you're holding a rod all day long. I mean, it's that light. And uh, and when you're Euro-nymphing, that is a key. And the other big thing I remember from that day was catching uh, a fish on my first cast. Pretty cool to be down in that part of the country and, and have some great success with Jeff. Maverick keeps things simple by offering a Euro-nymph product line with essentials you'll need from rod, reel, fly line, and leader system. Euro-nymphing doesn't have to be complicated, so let Maverick Fly Fishing get you started right now. You can learn more by checking out Maverick's YouTube channel for some tips and tutorials. And you can also head over right now to wetflyswing.com slash maverick to check out the good stuff they have going. That's Maverick, M-A-V-R-K, wetflyswing.com slash maverick to support this podcast and take a look at one of the most unique and efficient Euro-nymphing setups on the market. Okay, back to the show. Yeah, this is good. I mean, I think New York, the more you get into it, you know, it, it, you realize like, wow, it's a wealth of resources. You and know, we've still only, even with all the people, right? Yeah, we've only talked about the cold water species, you know, but there's just as many options, uh, if not more options for, you know, large mouth, small mouth, uh, the toothy fellas, you know, the pike and muskie, they're they're all around us, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. How far is uh, how far is Orvis? They're they're from you guys. They're just kind of east. Uh, the flagship store in Manchester is about an hour and fifteen, hour and a half. Oh yeah, you're right there. Yeah, so you're you're right next to Orvis. How does that? Feel? Orvis seems like one of those companies that's just obviously they're, you know, they they've been they're the company, right? They stand out above, yep. kind of above everybody, right? Because they're yeah. so unique. What, what's your take on Orvis? That's pretty cool. You guys have Orvis and everybody else in your shop. They offer, you know, a, a, a vast gamut of products, uh, but their fly rods, their waders, you know, everything they make is is good quality, and they have a good selection of, you know, inexpensive products to as much as you want to pay. But from a company standpoint, um, I admire Orvis. They uh, they put their money where their mouth is. They're definitely um, conservation minded. Not only for uh, the fisheries, but um, there's a, a a long lineage of uh, you know heritage in the in the uh, Perkins family that were grouse hunters and bird hunters, and so they they support uh, a lot of really good conservation uh, causes, and that that's uh, we like to support companies that do that because we do the same thing. Yeah, you do. So you guys are is that a big focus for you guys hitting you know making sure you're supporting those conservation groups. Yeah, yes. yeah, we are a you know business member of uh, you know Crowd Unlimited and, and actively involved with our local chapter. And I mentioned Ducks Unlimited a little while ago. I, I'm a a 40 year uh, volunteer 
past New York State chairman uh, for Ducks Unlimited, still still involved. Uh, you know, just a, a wonderful organization. And a lot of a lot of these organizations have a lot of crossover. I mean, you know, Trout Unlimited is about water quality, and Ducks Unlimited is about water quality too. So there's, you know, there's a lot of things they have in common that that uh, you know help help one another for sure. Um, I've been involved with the Rough Grouse Society. Uh, we've ran a couple chapter events here. So, yeah, we definitely, uh, you know, believe in, in being involved in the, in the conservation organizations, not just by supporting them, but by digging in and, and volunteering as well. Right, exactly. And that's the huge part. Yeah, volunteering, that's always the, you know, sending money is great for sure. That, that, that helps, but it's always getting people connected and volunteering and active, right, on the, on the ground because that's what keeps them going. Our, nice. our local uh, Trout Unlimited chapter, you know, this year, they've been doing a larger push to uh, rehab some of the Battenkill watershed, uh, whether it be like the tributaries that flow into the Battenkill uh, to kind of stabilize banks and, and you know, doing some repairing and planting. But, uh, you know, this year we're kind of looking to do more localized stuff that uh, impacts our local water uh resources like the the Kateros system, the uh, Neskia Thaw, which is a kind of a cool spring-fed uh, little creek in in southern Albany County. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're looking forward to helping out them, helping them out uh, this year. And I'm working on the Kateros section as well. Nice. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, it, it, again, it always comes back to it. That's, I was just talking to somebody actually, uh, uh, kind of a family member, uh, um, brother-in-law or whatever, and we were talking about. Actually, he's from New York. That's interesting. He's visiting. He's a doctor out in New York, but he was. Um, yeah, I was telling him that because we were talking about. He was actually asking me like the stuff I do, right, with the podcast. We're promoting more people to get into fishing, you know, and like he was kind of like, well, he in the climbing, you know, area. And it's interesting, right, because of Patagonia and Yvonne Shadard, mm-hmm. but you know, I mean, he was saying how some of the rock climbing they do. I mean, you can't even climb it anymore because the, the, the pitches are so smoothed out because it's been so pressured over the years. And he was asking about fly fishing. Don't you see that the same thing? Like literally you're helping more people get on the river and impact the fisheries. And the way I thought about it was, and maybe you guys, I don't know how you think about it, but I thought like, you know what, if I get one more person into fly fishing for life, they likely will be a conservation minded person. I mean, do you guys yeah. feel that that's kind of how you see it as well? Well, I think that's a, 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 a very good attitude to have about it. Um, you know, I, I came off of the, the West Branch of the Delaware two summers ago, and it's during the, the, the pandemic, um, there were so many people that were not working, so right. they, went, they went outdoors. And yeah. I never fished it that summer on a weekend. I fished it weekdays only, and I never saw so many people. Right. And I came off the water, and there was a, a fellow sitting in a lawn chair along the river with his waders. He, he, uh, he, he was an older gentleman. So he, he was smart enough to know that the lawn chair was more comfortable than the rock. And he was, uh, he was just watching it, you know, waiting for fish to rise. And, and we struck up a conversation about how many years we'd been fishing there and where was he from? He was from Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And then we talked about how many people were on the river and how crowded it got. And, uh, he said to me, he said, I don't know if this river can withstand this kind of pressure. Right. And, but I thought about that after we parted ways and, you know, I talked earlier about, um, sometimes how difficult it is to catch fish on that river. And I thought to myself, you know, just because there's 
three times as many people here fishing doesn't mean they're catching three times as many fish. I mean, a lot of fishermen on that river will walk off the river that day skunked. So I said, I don't know that I don't know that all these people are are hurting the fishery. You know, at, at some point you, you mentioned the rock climbing and the erosion and so on. At some point you, you have to wonder all the foot traffic and people if they're if they're doing uh, you know damage to other things in the ecosystem. But you know, as far as a lot of people fishing on uh, particularly on that watershed, they're not really hurting the fish because the fish are smarter than most of the fishermen. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that that makes the fish smarter. But yeah, I agree. I think I think it gets to a point. It's almost like the. Um, you know, some of these permitted rivers around the country, you know, you hate to see it, especially when it's your home river. You're like, oh, I don't want to be restricted. But, you know, the Grand Canyon is a great example. You know, if you want to fish, if you want to float the Grand Canyon, you know, you got to get a permit. And sometimes it might take you 10 years or, or longer. Yeah. Like that's the extreme version. But I think some level of that probably when things are so pressured, like it might have to go to that. I, I think we've seen positive outlook, uh, you know, um, results of that. Yeah. I was on last summer. I had the good fortune of spending quite a bit of time out west, and I, you know, the Madison River, uh, you know, in July and August is has got a reputation of being super crowded. And, exactly, and it, like a hundred boats, hundred trailers. Yeah. Are you? Were you guys seeing out there? Is that a permitted section, or is that just open? No. Well, I I was wade fishing, but my the point I was going to make is that I would stand there on the river in this particular spot I found to fish, and I would see pickup truck and drift boat driving by like crazy in the morning. And then if you drove down and had a higher view of the river, all you saw was this traffic of drift boats. But I was able to find plenty of water to fish without being crowded. Did I see other fishermen? Yes, I did. But I had plenty of room to fish and had no problem finding fish that I could, you know, that I could catch. So you know, I think a lot of people, and I fished the Madison in the 80s, um, you know, so if I wanted to say, boy, it was a lot better back then, right. yeah, well, it was definitely, you know, quieter and, and less developed, but it's still a great fishery. You know? Yeah, there's still room. You can see it's still that thing where you can hike and walk and get away from some people. Yeah. And to Steve's point, you know, uh, I was kind of saying about where we're located, you know, we have so many rivers within an hour of us and then you triple it when you go, you know, two hours away. So, you know, there may be a lot of people that are fishing, but they're not all going to the same river. No, that's right. Yeah. You guys have a, a diverse and large state and, uh, yeah, it sounds amazing. I think that we are definitely, you know, there's people listening now that are from New York and, uh, you know, I'm sure know it, know a lot of these waters we're talking about. So I think what I'll do is kind of, um, We'll add some links to the show notes for you guys. And uh, maybe before we get out of here, let's just do the two-minute drill and we'll kind of wrap this thing up. Does that sound okay for you guys? Yeah, you bet. Yeah. All right, perfect. So I wanted to just walk through. We, we said a couple things along the way. I think we painted the picture of Black Dog a little bit. It sounds like who's the – what was the name of the dog? that Was there a Black Dog that had a name that's still there? Well, there's two of them. There's, a, there's Gunny, who is the senior citizen of the group. She's yeah. Laying, she's laying down on the floor. Is that what the shop is that where the namesake comes from? Well, we had uh we had Bonnie and Betsy before then. So, you know, I've had labs all my life. But, oh yeah. Uh, yeah, so I I don't know. I don't I we named it before Gunny came along. So, uh, there's a there's a nice uh painting of uh uh Betsy that one of my friends had uh he played a dirty trick on me. He commissioned an artist to paint this 
painting of this uh, dog, and it was an actual photograph that he had. And then he uh, put it up for sale at a Ducks Unlimited event. So I had to buy it, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But now we have uh, we have Kaylee, who is uh, 13 months old, and she's the uh, the, the energy uh, energy rabbit running around the store all the time. But uh, gotcha. Yeah. And these are bird dogs. Yeah, yeah, they hunt. They've uh, we do a lot of uh, upland hunting. I I I do a lot of pheasant hunting with them, and of course, waterfowl hunting. That's right. So there's ton- is there tons of that in New York too? Just lots of uh, upland hunting. The um, the pheasant hunting is more put and take. Um, the there used to be a lot of grouse, and there are still quite a few grouse in the mountainous regions. But uh, a lot of our grouse uh, have been negatively impacted by the West Nile virus. So we're we're trying to see, uh, hopefully they'll come back from that. But, um, and of course, uh, during migrations, we've got pretty good woodcock hunting as well. Oh yeah. Cool. Yep. Right on. What does deer camp look like? If we, if we were up there with you on deer camp, is that in, is that in like October, November? Yeah. Deer camp, um, our season starts the middle of October and it with mu- muzzleloader and then it closes the first weekend in December. So it's, it's really long. Yeah. Oh, wow. Deer Camp is a, an old log building that was built by the uh, logging company uh, over 100 years ago as their headquarters. And it's located uh, almost two miles back on this godforsaken, muddy, rocky <laughs> road that takes you about 25 minutes to drive in on. Um, and it's less than two miles. That'll give you a little context. Um, off the grid, no electricity, no running water. Um, we do, you know, have. Uh, a generator and we bring our, we catch rainwater off the roofs for washing dishes and bring drinking water. And we are, our, our, our uh, facilities are a two holer out back. Perfect. You, can go, you can go out there with your buddy if you want, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a, it's a pretty great place. It's a, you know, off the grid uh, and entirely meaning no cell service either. Oh, wow. And, you know, we heat it primarily with wood. Uh, we have this kind of large, you know, those large fireplaces of, of the time where you know, it's, it's 10 feet wide, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it's just super a giant fireplace, <laughs> not, not a, not a wood stove. Well, we, we do never... have, we do have two wood stoves. <laughs> we only use the fireplace if we have an excess of wood or if we right. want it to look nice. I was going to say, yeah, at our, yeah. at our elk camp, we used to have a, sometimes a big fire out camping and yeah, you could burn through some wood pretty quick, right? Yeah. yeah. It's more for an ambiance, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's cool. So this is actually an old, uh, an old building. It is an old building cabin that you yeah. guys are, you all, and how many people are going up to deer camp? Well, we, we Six can, we can sleep 11. Um, but we, we, we generally, uh, the average weekend at deer camp is, uh, between four and six people. We'll ha- usually have one weekend a year where we'll have 10 or 11. Um, the deer hunting in the Adirondacks, um, is extremely difficult. Oh, it um, is. Yeah. There are not a lot of deer and there, gotcha. there is just massive timber and forest land. And you also have to um, know how to get around in the woods. Um, you know, if you walk south out of our cabin, you can go 32 miles before you hit another road. Oh, wow. So you better have uh, some respect for uh, knowing how to read a map and a compass or have a GPS with extra batteries. And to complicate it, you know, the, the area that camp is in doesn't have a lot of uh, large topographical features. So if you, if you spin yourself around a few times, yeah. uh, all the hills kind of look the same. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. The first thing I ask um, a guest when they come into camp for the first time is, uh, did you bring a map and a compass? And 
maybe maybe 25 or 30 percent of them say yes and then i tell them well that's okay i if you didn't bring one i have extras now don't lie to me do you know how to use a map and a compass? right that's and the next thing at least half of them say no i said no. okay good this is all important information we will yeah. make sure we we don't lose you <laughs> yeah i think i will give a shout out to uh, they're not a sponsor but onyx maps is uh you know, a pretty awesome tool. And I've yeah. been on the electronics. I mean, that thing is just, yeah, it's pretty amazing downloading all the maps. And yeah, yeah. The, extra the, batteries, a good tip. The important thing to know on the Onyx is uh, because we we don't have any service, um, you need to download that map in that location before you get there. Exactly. Yeah, you got to download the maps. That's yeah. the key. That's the key. Perfect. So basically, deer camping, you guys, I mean, you go up there with this crew what is a good season? Like how many animals? Is this like one of those things where if you get one, you're feeling pretty good each year? We uh, about three. Yeah, we, we Oh cool. Uh, you're getting some animals. Yeah, we, we harvested three three nice bucks last year. Um and we we try and practice we don't kill a year and a half old deer. Um we or passed two year up old deer. Yeah, we passed up a couple of deer last year. Now if you know, if I have somebody that comes up with their kid and he's never shot a deer before, I tell them shoot whatever buck you want to. It's legal. Yeah. Exactly. You know, uh, so we don't have a, you know, really rigid rule, but, you know, my friends and family that have harvested deer before just, Hey, pass up that young one. Let's hope that they get a little bit bigger. Six or better. Yeah. Right. Right. Six point six or better. So like, yeah. And we've got, we've got bear and there's uh there's some moose running around the, the, the cold corner of the building is all raked up with the claws from a bear. Nice. Yeah. Nice, we, nice. we like showing that to the new people that come. Exactly. Yeah. You guys have some bears up there. Oh yeah. Perfect. Yeah. That's the other great thing. Lots of, uh, I mean, yeah, you guys are so close. I mean, you are up and I mean, I'm not sure the latitude or whatever, but it's, you know, you're, you're way up there. You know, that's the cool thing about New York and that's yeah. obviously why you guys get the weather. Um, but I mean, Canada is just, I mean, a drive right a few hours away up to, uh, up to Canada. Yeah. It's about three hours to Montreal. Yeah. Montreal, yeah from exactly. camp, from deer camp, we could be, uh, maybe less than two hours. Yeah. Less than two hours. Nice. All right. Well, let's start the, the we're officially starting the two minute drill now. So, um, so let's start with, uh, let's start with you, Scott. So you're heading out, uh, to go fishing in May. You only have one dry fly you can take. Um, what, what is that dry fly? Uh, green or tan caddis. Okay. A dry, like a can, would that be like an elk hair caddis? Yeah. Uh, or, or an emerger. Or an emerging. Yeah. Emerging cat. Okay. And uh, Steve, for you, what is your one? Uh, what is your one rifle? What do you got for deer hunting? What are you using? A two eighty Remington bolt action left handed mountain rifle. Remington. Oh wow, two eighty, two eighty Remington. Yep. So that's like a wow, that's amazing because I always think of like the two seventy. I, I have a two seventy, or I was close to two seventy, but the two eighty. Now, why the two eighty? Why not a two seventy or a thirty out six? All right, good question. Good question. So the the two seventy and the two eighty were created from a thirty out six. They're both neck oh down. wow. And uh, neck when down. I when I decided that I was going to buy that rifle from Remington back a long time ago, um, I did my research. And the two seventy is a wonderful cartridge. If I was only going to hunt deer with it, yeah, two seventy would shoot be straight. It, you can only go up to a 150 grain bullet with a 270, but a 280 is a seven millimeter. So I can go all the way up to oh. a 75 grain. So it's more versatile. More versatile. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I was going to say, I have a, I have a seven mm, uh, mag. Yep. So it's got the similar, right? Similar deal. It's the 280. Yep. Right. That's cool. Okay, good. And, uh, 
and Scott, so what is your what is your one rod? So you're heading out like you can only take one one length and weight rod. What are you using out there in that part of the world? Can I euro nymph? Yeah. Yep. Anything. All right. I uh, I got myself a Sage Sense, which is kind of their mid grade rod. Uh huh. But uh, that that is a phenomenal, you know, phenomenal rod. It has great feel for the bottom or a fish, and right, it is. It is effective. <laughs> what is the what is the length of that rod? Uh, it's a ten and a half foot three weight. Yeah, so so it's a euro. It's pretty much you could use it for euro. Yep, and perfect. I mean, it is just it's fun. <laughs> this is awesome. Yeah, we just wrapped up our well, we're wrapping up our euro school. We're setting it up. We did a a little giveaway event, and we've got we're heading over to kind of the Henry's Fork with Pete Erickson uh, from Team USA. He's going to do a, run the school for us, and uh, and it's all Euro, right? So it's one of those things that we've never done this, but it's it's a very, in, you know, people are interested in that, right? It's one of the, whenever we do episodes around that, lots of people are interested. It is. Uh, do you guys find that as well? Pretty, It's an yeah. effective way and lots of people into it? I mean, what I'll typically do is I'll bring a Euro rod with me and I'll bring a dry fly rod or a streamer rod. You know, if, yeah. it's, if it's in the colder months, streamer Cover rod. it all. You know, and if something's hatching, dry fly rod. Gotcha, gotcha, perfect. All right, and and Steve, what's your what's your one fishing tip? If somebody's out there, they're trying to hit dries in the Catskills, and they're just basically heading out the door. What do you tell them before they leave? Well, I would say that I think a lot of, of fishermen um, they'll they'll either call or go to the fly shop and they'll take a look at what their chalkboard says is currently going on, and then they have tunnel vision. And they only try two or three different flies because the chalkboard said that. Right. Um, I came off of the the Delaware a couple of years ago fishing with two buddies, and both of them are very experienced fishermen. And I was just around the bend out of sight from them. And I it was the Hendri- Hendrickson's were hatching. And I caught three fish, and I was, I was a little disappointed with myself because there were so many fish rising, but I could only catch three. And I kept thinking to myself, boy, those guys are probably hammering them down there. I should go down there and find out what they're using. I get down there and neither one of them had hooked a fish, nothing. Yeah. And right. I, I said to my one friend, I said, well, how many, how many times did you change your fly to a different fly? This was over the course of about four hours. He said, maybe three. He said, how many times did you change yours? I said, over 20. If you put a good drift over a rising fish and he doesn't eat it and you do it three or four times, change something. That's my tip. That is a good tip. 100%. That is a good tip. Yeah, you got you're you're basically hunting. I mean, we just had the the trout hunter on recently and you know, because we've been focusing in that part of Idaho and uh, and we were asking him about it like and he I mean, they're looking for heads. You know, they're they're walking, they're hiking the stream looking for heads popping up before they even think about casting. And he's, he he said it's like he's hunting. He's hunting the trout, right? That's kind of what they're doing. So for you Steve staying there, um, I mean, you can only, you've got one, one activity. It's either fly fishing or hunting and you got to choose one. What are you choosing? Oh, well, that's a good question. So <laughs> had you asked me that 10 years ago, I would have said hunting. Oh, wow. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm 66 years old now. And I've, I've, I've been, I've hunted a lot. I've fished and, and hunted a lot. And I think I hunted so much over the last 30 years that I realized that I don't have time to do everything. And I kind of gave up, compromised the amount of time I was able to spend on the river. And this past summer, my wife and I um, took off for two months and I fished a lot. And I said to myself, 
I got to do more. I got to do more fishing. And this winter, I've been tying flies, and I'm just like, I can't wait for spring. I'm desperate for spring. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Perfect. So, so it's it's evolved into probably more fishing than hunting. That although I don't have to, I, I don't have the choice of giving one up. Right. Yeah, you don't have to. That's just in this in this scenario in our two minute drill. So okay, and, and we'll kind of wrap it up here with uh, with Scott. You on on your trip. I'm not sure if you have some like a bucket list trip you haven't gone on around the country, the world. Do you, do you have one there you want to, you've been thinking about? Oh, uh, so we have a few customers that are, are well-traveled and we've got a, a good friend who just went up to Igloo Lake, uh, which is way up in Newfoundland. Oh, wow. Labrador. 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 Oh yeah. Labrador. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. So they were fishing for just North Eagle. of you guys, right? I mean, you could drive yeah. up there. Yeah. Well, you, you they can't, you can't drive where they were. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but that, that looked really cool there. You know, they were fishing for uh, Arctic char and oh, large. Wow. Trout, wow. You know, that inhabit yeah. these, these streams there. Uh, Gosh, Arctic and, char. I don't even think about that species, but that's up there too. But another thing that would definitely be on the bucket list is going down to the, you know, the keys and, and yeah. going for, you know, tarpon and, you know, permits and stuff like that. I mean, the saltwater thing is, it's, it's really cool. And it's a little bit further of a drive uh, for us here, but, you know, we have access to, to some good fishing and, you know, getting those species that you don't get around yours is something to travel for. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. We just, uh, had Bruce chart on a lot, well, a while back, but he, he talked about the grand slam, right? I mean, they got giant tarpon down there in the keys. They got the good bone fishing and even yeah. permit, right? I mean, there's a chance to get the, the grand slam. Cool. All right. Well, let's, and, and Steve, let's just leave it on you. Give us your, do you, I'm not sure. Do you have some thoughts of getting out somewhere before, you know, you end your time on, on, you know, out here as far as a big bucket list trip? Uh, well, I'll tell you, I got a really good friend who's, uh, it was the Chasons or where, where is it? How do they say that? Um, he's, he's there right now. He travels all over the place. So he, he keeps uh, going these places. And every time he goes there to these places, I change my mind as to, Oh, maybe I should try and go there. Maybe I should try and go here. I, I don't feel like I need to be a world traveler to go do it. Although some of that stuff is pretty awesome, but um, you know, I, Alaska, I, I was, I, I fished Alaska a couple of times. So I, I'd say, I'd love to go back to Alaska again. And the last time I was there, we targeted rainbow trout, not, not salmon. So that was pretty awesome. Right. Where'd you go to Alaska in Alaska? We, uh, we fished Lake Creek. We flew in and uh, floated. We got dropped off by a plane. It was uh, four of us, two rats. Oh, nice. Unguided. Did you did a DIY, did your own thing. Yep. Yep. And, uh, cool. had I known that there was a uh, class three and a half and class four rapids and, and, I, I don't know that I would have done it, but I'm here talking about it. So we made <laughs> <You> it. survived. <laughs> That's the thing about Alaskans and even uh, Canadians I find up in, you know, that part of the world, BC and everything is that their levels, you know, they tell you like, oh yeah, here's, here's a little class three. And then you get in and you're like, oh my God, this thing, right. I think their levels, they've just seen more stuff than we have, baby. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. Yeah, all right, guys. Well, we'll we'll send everybody out to uh, BlackDogOutdoorSports.com if they have questions for you. And uh, yeah, just want to thank you guys both for shedding some light on New York here. And uh, it was really a lot of fun. And we'll hope to keep in touch with you guys moving ahead. Thank you, Dave. We we certainly appreciate your our time with you. Yep, it was a pleasure. Thank you. So there it is. WetFlySwing.com/slash four hundred and thirty-five. 
435. You can get uh, some of the, the links. Take a look at maybe Deer Camp. Maybe not. We might not have Deer Camp in there, but uh, there will be some links to the stuff we talked about today on the podcast. Quick reminder, the Stonefly uh, build-out bonus is going on right now. You can check in wetflyswing.com slash giveaway for a chance to win this custom net from Stonefly. Quick shout out to Brandon Hudson before we get out of here. Brandon left a great uh, a great email and actually had a great quote. One of my favorites as well. But uh, uh, Brandon uh, reached out and said that uh, he wanted to let me know uh, that he has counted up the episodes he's listened to of the Wet Fly Swing podcast 182. He says uh, he's listened to 182 of these episodes, and he said uh, that uh, we are a machine. And Brandon entered this uh, recent giveaway, and he said that on the last giveaway, we had to have two devices running, uh, one to catch the feed and the second to uh, answer the questions. We always give away some bonuses on these live events. So this is awesome here, Brandon, that you're, uh, you're on these and enjoying it. This is amazing. Uh, Brandon, thank you for checking in and let me know you've been listening to podcasts and uh, and definitely loving uh, loving you for letting us know. Uh, and his little quote at the end says, the smallest act of kindness is worth more than the grandest intention. I'm going to leave it at that for today. There's not much else you can say right there. That is probably the greatest quote. So I am going to let you get out of here. I'm going to get out of here as well. And I hope you're having a good evening, good morning, or good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. And I appreciate you for stopping in to check out the show today. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.